0: chapter 6 here a conspiracy there a conspiracy the term new age is certainly not new the bible distinguishes between this age and the age to come matthew 12:32 by implication the age to come is new while this age will pass away and become old The term New Age has been used quite freely by some very Orthodox Christian theologians. There is nothing in their writings that would indicate that they have been seduced by New Age humanism as espoused by present-day occultists. A cursory reading of major theological works will show that the term New Age was used quite freely without any hint of hidden occultic meaning. We need to recognize that eschatology does not pertain exclusively to the future. Jesus did introduce a new age, and the victory over the powers of evil has already been won, even though the struggle is still to be enacted in history. The new age has already been ushered in. The New Testament believer was conscious that he was living in the last days and the last hour, Among biblical writers, no one has laid so much stress on the fact that Christ has ushered us into a new age, as has the Apostle Paul. In Colossians 1.13, he says that God has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, implying that we have been delivered from the power of the old aeon age of sin. Compare Galatians 1.4. There was a new age after the fall of man, an age of sin and death. That new age brought on by Adam's sin became the old age after the coming of the second Adam, Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5:17. The new Christian age is also described as the new covenant. Jeremiah 31:27 through 34. Hebrews 8:8 through 12. Jesus's new age. Long before the new age became identified with pagan occultic practices. The term was used to describe the new age that Jesus inaugurated through his death, resurrection, and ascension. One such book that expresses this view is Roderick Campbell's Israel and the New Covenant, originally published in 1954 by Presbyterian and Reform Publishing Company and recently reprinted. Chapter 12 is titled The New Age and contains this passage. The following are a few significant phrases or titles which are based upon reference in the New Testament to this most revolutionary of all transformations. In each of them, the context from which they are derived demands that they be understood as applicable either to the transition from the old to the new covenant age, or to the consequent transformation which is being or will be effected in this present age. 1. The Restoration of All Things, Matthew 17, 11. 2. The regeneration, Matthew nineteen twenty-eight. Three times of refreshing, Acts three nineteen. Four, the times of the restitution of all things, Acts three twenty-one. Five, the time of the reformation, Hebrews nine ten. Six, the new heavens and a new earth, Revelation twenty-one one. Seven, all things new, Revelation twenty-one five. The present humanistic New Age advocates have taken these biblical concepts and have secularized them. On the one hand, much of the Church has denied these rich biblical truths and has instead taught a doctrine that denies the people of God any earthly victory through the preaching of the Gospel and the indwelling and transforming work of the Holy Spirit. O.T. Alice makes a very timely observation as he seems to anticipate the present controversy. Speaking of Campbell and Israel and the New Covenant, Alice writes, He does not accept what he calls the easy solution of the problem, or the duty and destiny of the church, according to which we are to accept the failure of the church to win the world for Christ as evidence that this is not really the task of the church and that we are to expect the Lord, by his coming and visible reign, to accomplish the task of establishing his kingdom on earth. He tells us very definitely that this task is assigned to the church, and he challenges her to bestir herself for its achievement, for he believes that it is only when the church has accomplished the task assigned her that she can expect her Lord to say unto her, Well done, good and faithful servant, and to receive her unto himself. This is the reason that the constant emphasis in the book is on the present task of the church as the ambassador of Christ to a needy, sin-cursed world. Again, the term new age is empty by itself. We should ask about its content. What concept is carried by the phrases new age or new world order? Some writers and thinkers might use the phrases quite innocently. In Christian love, we first should seek to understand what these people mean before we start accusing them of being something they may not be. Not everyone who believes in the Christianization of this world and the transformation of its institutions according to the renewing work of the gospel through the empowering of the Holy Spirit is seduced by New Age propaganda. Modern Newspeak As we all know, words can mean different things to different people in different times. Our society is notorious for giving new meanings to old words. Since we find comfort in what is familiar, words are used by various non-Christian groups and then filled with new and sometimes sinister content. First, it was sodomy. Then it became homosexuality. Now a sodomite is described as being gay. Being gay takes the verbal edge off the descriptive and negative sodomite. The semantic abuse in the abortion debate is even more clear. Abortionists do not call themselves pro-death. Rather, they choose words that bridge religious and political lines of thought. Most Americans believe that they ought to have the right to make their own choices without interference from government. The pro-abortionists choose pro-choice to put the best face on their bloody business. The majority of Americans who really do not know what happens during an abortion are often fooled because the word pro-choice is so American. The communist use of the words peace and détente are another example. The words humanist and humanism were chosen centuries ago by pagan philosophers and scientists to present a worldview that few people could disagree with by only hearing the words. Most people equate humanism with humanitarianism or the humanities. Historically, a humanist was someone whose studies included classical learning. So then today, being anti-humanistic means you must be an anti-humanitarian and you despise the humanities. This is a very clever tactic. Find a word that has broad appeal and then fill it with new content. The unsuspecting will be drawn into the new world view without warning. But in fact, humanism is much more sinister than the word would suggest. Francis Schaeffer writes, The word humanism means man beginning from himself, with no knowledge except what he himself can discover, and no standard outside of himself. In this view, man is the measure of all things, as the Enlightenment expressed it. In other words, mankind can only look to itself for solutions to its problems, and never looks to God either for salvation or for moral direction. Humanism can be seen, then, as the ultimate attempt to pull oneself up by one's bootstraps. The New Agers are equally adept at choosing the right words. What if the present New Age movement used phrases that really expressed what they believe? They would call their movement the anti-God, man is God, we are God movement. Or perhaps, I'm all God, you're all God. This would immediately turn off millions of people who are normally quite naive when it comes to spiritual things. A hit-on frontal attack is unwise if your goal is to capture the mood and mind of the unsuspecting. New Age seems so optimistic and upbeat. Who doesn't want to be part of a new age? The Age of Aquarius, as it was described in the 1960s. The aging, traditional New Deal liberal, Max Lerner, in the foreword to Marilyn Ferguson's The Aquarian Conspiracy, captures the author's hopeful prognosis for the future. She describes with excitement the world of those who have strained to see past the blinders on the human spirit and have thrown them off, and she matches her own mood to their sense of optimism. I bring you good news is her message. Such an appeal is attractive to people with little or no theological training. The Christian knows that the gospel is the true good news. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Luke 2, 10-11 Any other claim to good news is a counterfeit gospel. Christians must insist that content is what is really important. In this age of creedless Christianity, sloppy theology, and blind ecclesiastical unity, the church is easily thrown onto the map by the masters of verbal jiu-jitsu or persuaded by artful sleight of hand. Some newly initiated dominion-thinking Christians are now confused because dominion, kingdom theology, and Christian reconstruction are being linked to the anti-God, man-is-God, we-are-all-God worldview of New Age humanism. The devil couldn't be happier. The church, after basking in the light of God's promises of victory for the faithful, now seems to be retreating back to the seemingly comfortable surroundings of their previously occupied caves, waiting for Jesus to rapture them home. No such rescue will take place. The rapture is a sign of victory for the church, not defeat. Is there a new age conspiracy? Conspiracy. The word strikes a note of terror or excitement in the heart of the little guy. What can a few Christians do when the whole world is controlled by a liberal media, international bankers, and the Council on Foreign Relations, especially when they are in league with one another and the devil? Of course, the natural response is that we can't do much. Dave Hunt states that it is no longer a question of whether, but when humanity will be united both economically and politically under a one-world government. He goes on to quote from the Washington Post evaluation of the Carter administration, If you like conspiracy theories about secret plots to take over the world, you are going to love the administration of President-elect Jimmy Carter. At last count, 13 trilateralists had gone into top positions. Extraordinary when you consider that the Trilateral Commission only has about 65 American members. The Biblical View The Bible has something to say about the conspiracies of men. You are not to say... It's a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy, and you are not to fear what they fear, or be in dread of it, Isaiah 8:12. Basically, God is saying that the conspiracies of men mean nothing in the long run. First, we should not call everything conspiratorial just because a number of anti-Christian groups think alike and often work in the same areas. The anti-Christian conspirators often look to Christian groups and make the same assessment. There are hundreds of Christian ministers that are not officially related, but their common beliefs and goals give the impression that they are working together, conspiring to bring an end to humanism wherever it is found. There are times when many of these Christian groups might work together on common projects to display a show of force. Usually, when the battle is finished, each group goes back to its original chartered goals. In his credit, Hunt does tell us that, These organizations, trilateralists, Masons, Illuminati, and New Age Networks are only pawns in the real game. The mastermind behind the scene is Satan himself, and the world takeover is his move. Isn't it at least possible that the world takeover is God's move? With what we know about God and his infinite power, and what we know about the devil and his limited power, what leaves Hunt and others to conclude that there is no hope for the world? Doesn't scripture tell us that Greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. 1 John 4.4 Gary North writes, Why is it that Satan's earthly followers who violate God's principles for successful living supposedly will remain in control of the world until the rapture? Are we supposed to believe that Satan's principles produce personal failure but cultural success, while biblical principles produce personal success but cultural failure? Does this make sense to you? It doesn't to me. Paranoia for Jesus Second, preoccupation with conspiratorial designs leads to paranoia and immobility, even if the devil is orchestrating the whole mess. If you look hard enough, you can see conspiracy and the devil everywhere. Any idea that connects with some aspect of New Age thinking will immediately label the entire organization or person as part of the conspiracy. Well, I heard the same thing from a known New Ager. He must be part of the conspiracy too. Some have maintained that Getting your colors done is a new age concept. Now it may very well be that there are a lot of new agers who get their colors done because of some cosmic color scheme that supposedly puts them in tune with the spiritual forces of nature, but this does not make the practice evil and part of some new age conspiracy. God created color, arranging the colors of our wardrobe so the look is pleasing to the eye, did not originate with new age thinkers. Art in all its forms is God's gift. The Christian should not reject art, color-coordinated clothes, design forms, and beauty because some pagans distort and pervert their meaning. What do these people think about Joseph's coat of many colors? Were his brothers right in getting rid of him? Was he a secret New Ager? A few years ago, Carol DeMar, wife of the co-author, was asked by Walk Through the Bible, an Atlanta-based Christian ministry specializing in monthly devotional materials, to sew a quilted backdrop for their display booth. Part of the design was a rainbow. At the National Religious Broadcasters Convention in 1986, co-author Gary DeMar had the opportunity to see the completed quilt displayed. I introduced myself to those manning the booth, telling them how my wife sewed the quilt. They told me that a few people chastised them for using the quilt because of the rainbow design. Don't you know, the New Age critics said, that the rainbow is the symbol of the New Age movement? This is paranoia. The rainbow is God's covenant sign, Genesis 9:12 through 17 We should always be reminded of God's faithfulness, mercy, and grace every time we see the rainbow. If there are hidden dangers in the rainbow, then they are dangers to the humanist who refuse to recognize that God made the rainbow in order to remind himself of his covenant with man. Genesis 9.16 There are Christians who believe with all their hearts that anything stolen by Satan's followers from Christianity is forever Satan's, and any attempt on the part of Christians to reclaim it in the name of Jesus Christ is an aspect of New Age theology. These Christians take the attitude that What's Satan's is Satan's, and what's ours is negotiable. So, for that matter, does Satan. In a statement prepared by Evangelical Ministries to New Religions, E-M-N-R, a cautionary word was given. New Age teachers often use a common terminology. However, merely using a term popular among New Agers, such as consciousness, holistic, or global, No more indicates acceptance of New Age philosophy than the use of the term evangelism indicates acceptance of Christianity. Christian groups that adopt the rainbow or use such terms as holistic, God, heals the whole person, and global, our presentation of the gospel should be global, are not necessarily New Agers because they use similar terms. Networking Networking, we are told, is another one of those words that an Orthodox Christian should not use if he does not want to be labeled a New Ager. Again, here's a theologically useful term being painted with the same brush, an anti-color brush of course, used by some Christians to paint supposed New Agers. John Nisbitt, author of Megatrends and Reinventing the Corporation, would describe himself as a New Age thinker. At least some of his statements and practices would put him in that category. He talks about setting out to write a book about reinventing the world we live in. This would include business, the family, the workplace, the arts, politics, education, and on and on. He and his co-authors settled on reinventing the corporation. They tell us that there is no time like the present to change the world. They go on to say that there must be a confluence of both changing values and economic necessity, and that is precisely what we have now, new humanistic values and global economic imperatives. These are rip-off words to those who see the new age in everything and everybody, humanistic values and global anything. Now Nisbit devotes an entire chapter to hierarchies and networking in megatrends, what if Christian groups use the term networking to describe the tactic of organizing a large force? Are these Christian groups part of the conspiracy? Are they in danger of being sucked into the vortex of New Age thinking? I don't think so. Networking grows out of man's limited abilities to do everything himself. By nature, man is limited. This is Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 12-14. through 14. Christians, in a sense, network their gifts to create a unified body of effort for the advance of the kingdom. Just because some New Age groups have picked it up and demonized it does not mean that networking in and of itself is evil. Pre-Revolutionary America had a form of networking called the Committees of Correspondence. The purpose of these committees was to fight a larger enemy, the Crown, the centralized British government. John Fiske writes, The system of Committees of Correspondence did indeed grow into a mighty tree, for it was nothing less than the beginning of the American Union. Adams himself by no means intended to confine his plan to Massachusetts, for in the following April he wrote to Richard Henry Lee of Virginia, urging the establishment of similar committees in every colony, but Virginia had already acted in the matter. Again, we find that the New Agers have stolen another Christian concept and used it for the advance of their demonic, man-centered, anti-Christian kingdom building. Jesus' words sum up the matter. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. Luke 16.8 Immobilized for Jesus Seeing a conspiracy under every rock simply because there seems to be an abundance of evidence to support the thesis leads to paranoia. Richard Hofstadter says that What distinguishes the paranoid style is not, then, the absence of verifiable facts, but rather the curious leap in imagination that is always made at some critical point in the recital of events. From the supposed verifiable facts, one then makes the big leap from the undeniable to the unbelievable. Doug Gruthius writes that New Age influence in our culture is undeniable. Its power as a comprehensive conspiracy is less certain. The little guy gets so overwhelmed by the immense task that looms before him that he is unable to mobilize himself and others to fight the enemy. But in God's eyes, the size of the enemy is inconsequential. Too often we impute power to evil, making it seem more sinister than it really is. Numbers 13 through 14 compared with Joshua 2. In fact, it's an opportunity for God to show his strength. Didn't Paul tell us that, Power is perfected in weakness. Second Corinthians twelve nine. Compare First Corinthians one twenty five, Hebrews eleven thirty two through thirty four. Evil never has the upper hand because we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Romans eight twenty eight. Compare Genesis forty five one through eleven fifty twenty. There is often the Perception of power and all too often the imputation of power to evil men by Christians. What does God think of the conspiracies of men? Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Psalm 2, 1-6 This psalm does not reflect the theology of pessimism. Dave Hunt's view of victory is the martyrs going to their death, singing of their love for the Lord and trusting him. It is true that for the Christian there is victory even in death. The sting of death is removed. There will be no reason to fear it. But are we to believe that there is no earthly victory for the people of God? Are we to believe that the church will never succeed and be victorious in anything? Can we conclude that success or victory is really a delusion and a seduction? Was the church victorious in England in abolishing the slave trade? Or should William Wilberforce have preached to the slaves the song of martyrs going to their death? The Last Days 2 Timothy 3 is often quoted by those who see no earthly hope for the people of God. The first eight verses are a litany of pessimism, yet there is no mention of the end of the world, only the end of humanism in this passage. While nearly everyone reads that, In the last days difficult times will come, verse 1, few read this phrase in context and through the end of the chapter. The ungodly will manifest a variety of characteristics that show their opposition to God's purposes. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, evildoers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, etc. Verses 2-5. through five. Timothy is told to avoid such men as these. Verse 5. Questions remain, however, when are the last days? Will the ungodly dominate culture? When Christians see these characteristics surfacing, how should they respond? First, let's keep in mind that Paul is writing to Timothy, a first-century pastor. The words have meaning for him. While applications of these principles can be made to other periods in history, it's to Timothy that the warning comes. Second, the phrase, the last days, is contrasted with the days before Jesus came to earth. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions, and in many ways, in the former days, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. Hebrews 1, 1 1-2 The writer to the Hebrew Christians made it clear that he and they, the Hebrew Christians, were living in the last days. Peter sees Joel's prophecy as being applicable to the people who heard his message at the feast of Pentecost. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit upon all mankind, Acts 2:17). This was his answer to the Pentecost experience. It would have made no sense if the fulfillment were 2,000 years later. There is no hint of a double fulfillment. Finally, Paul makes this striking assertion. Now these things happened to them, the Israelites who wandered in the wilderness, as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. 1 Corinthians 10, 11 The early church, the church to whom Paul wrote his letters, was living in the last days. Therefore, Paul's warning to Timothy was a message of encouragement as he describes the demise of the enemies of the gospel. Paul's intention was not to present the church with signs that will warn some future generation of when Jesus is about to return. As we've shown in chapter 3, this passage has been used by nearly every generation of Christians to prove that Jesus is about to rapture his church. At first reading, 2 Timothy 3 seems to indicate that the ungodly will prevail and godly influence will decline. Further study, however, shows that the Apostle Paul describes a different scenario. Paul compares the progress of the ungodly in Timothy's day with that of Janus and Jambres, the Egyptian sorcerer priests who opposed Moses, Exodus 7:11). But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, as also that of those two, Janus and Jambres, came to be, 2 Timothy 3-9. Paul tells us that the people in Timothy's day who exhibit the deeds of wickedness will suffer the fate of Janus and Jambres. Paul backs up his assertion with reference to an incident from the Old Testament where it seemed that God's people were on the losing side of the battle. Then Pharaoh, who called for the wise men and the sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same with their secret arts, for each one threw down his staff, and they turned into serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs, Exodus 7:11 through 12. While it is true that there is an attempt by the ungodly to dominate culture, the fact is they will not make further progress. Their fleeing with ungodliness is only temporary. Compare Romans 1:18 through32. Christians can remain optimistic even if the actions of the ungodly increase. In time, if Christians remain faithful in influencing their world with the gospel, the actions of the ungodly will be eliminated. Paul, however, does not allow the Christian to remain passive as the ungodly self-destruct. Timothy has followed Paul's teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, precautions, and sufferings. 2 Timothy 3:10 through 11 and he calls on us to do the same, verses 16-17. through 17. While the ungodly expend their spiritual capital in present-oriented living and therefore have nothing saved for the future, the Christian is to develop future-oriented spiritual capital to replace the bankrupt culture of humanism with a Christ-centered society. Notice that the characteristics of the ungodly are all self-directed and short-lived, summarized by this phrase, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Verse 4. Sin has its pleasure for a short period of time. He who loves pleasure will become a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not become rich. Proverbs 21.17 The love of pleasure is no investment in the future. The characteristics of the godly are future-directed, foregoing the lure of present pleasures for the benefit of future productivity. Teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, and perseverance take time and energy from the present, but result in future reward. Moreover, persecutions and sufferings should not deter the future-oriented Christian, because out of them all the Lord delivers us. 2 Timothy 3.11 If the Christian looks only at present happenings, he loses his hope of becoming a cultural influence, since he perceives the statement, Evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. 2 Timothy 3.13 As something permanent. But even this description should not disturb the faithful Christian. Everything the ungodly does is a deception that backfires. Their deception of other men returns to them so that even they are being deceived. We also must remember the previous words of Paul. But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, verse 9. In the short term, it appears that the ungodly will prevail. Christians, however, must begin to think long term. While the ungodly burn themselves out, the godly steadily influence their world. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, verse 14. In time, the effects of perseverance will be seen, and let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary, Galatians 6, 9. In time and in history, God defeats his enemies through the empowerment of his Holy Spirit and the faithfulness of his servants. Paul does not deny persecutions and sufferings, 2 Timothy 3.11, but he does tell us that out of them all the Lord delivered me, verse 11. Was Peter escaping Dave Hunt's version of victory by going to his death when the angel of the Lord opened the prison door for him to escape, Acts 5.19-20? Was Paul missing out on true victory when some of the disciples lowered him in a basket so he could escape death at the hands of the Jews who plotted together to do away with him? Acts nine, twenty three through twenty five. The Bible shows us that victory is described in numerous ways. In all circumstances, death and life, the Christian is victorious. Suffering for Jesus is victory, Acts five forty one, as is deliverance from suffering, second Timothy three, eleven. Conclusion conspiracies exist. Psalm 2 points out that the kings of the earth counsel and conspire together against the Christ, and Pilate and Herod became friends as a result of their common opposition to Jesus. Though the Bible acknowledges that conspiracies exist, it also teaches that even the most powerful conspiracy is powerless before the Almighty King. However powerful and well organized the New Age movement might appear, it is no match for our Lord. Though the battle may be fierce, Christ's victory is assured, Christians must view the New Age movement with the eyes of faith and not be intimidated by its apparent power.